0: Welcome back to Elderside Weird Fiction Podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Brandon Buddha, and I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back this episode to finish our coverage of The Gunslinger by Stephen King. This is going to be the discussion episode, and there is a, a lot to discuss here, as we discovered during the during the recap episodes, the two recap episodes. But before we get into all of that, uh, we want to let people know about our new Patreon goal. We heard from a number of people that they were not especially excited about the goal that we are closing in on, so we've changed it. And so what we did was have a vote among our current Patreon supporters to select which novel or long novella by H.P. Lovecraft we should cover in a special Patreon series. On the ballot was The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which we talked about a lot this year without actually covering. Uh, In fact, talked about on on two different (laughs) shows, uh, but never actually covered it. Uh, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward and At the Mountains of Madness. And that is what won, At the Mountains of Madness and That's perhaps not entirely unexpected, but I thought it would be really a two-way race between that book and The Shadow Over Innsmouth, but it was actually The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath that came in second, and it was pretty close. It was just a few votes, really, which surprised me. But anyway, that is going to be a new goal. We're going to do a uh, uh, chapter-by-chapter series on At the Mountains of Madness that we will put on Patreon when we get to our next goal. And we really only need six or seven people to join us at our voting level. In order to hit that goal, uh, or I don't know, 15 or 20 people maybe at the, the lower levels. So that really could be something that we get started on, even in just the next few weeks, if people are interested. I am so excited about this. I have been wanting to read At the Mountains of Madness for
0: a long time. It has been on my short list, not only for its inspiration for you know a lot of John Carpenter's work, like The Thing, but also in the mouth. Of Madness, which is one of my favorite of his movies. So I cannot wait until we hit this goal and we cover this story and we're able to kind of talk about it. And I can make all kinds of pop culture references, which is really, really why I want to read it and talk about it on air.
1: Right. The, the X-Files jokes are going to practically write themselves. Yeah. 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 That's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, this is a novel of an academic expedition to Antarctica. Uh, you and I are people who've gone on expeditions together, wilderness <laughs> expeditions together. I am an academic. Uh, and so this is really going to be right up our alley. I think there's gonna be a lot to, to talk about. It will be a ton of fun. So I hope that we get there uh, sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, me too. But we have uh, quite a lot to talk about today with Stephen King's novella, The Gunslinger, which is the first of five novellas that were written and collected into the novel The Gunslinger. They were all published in the magazine of science fiction and fantasy, later were kind of collected and re-edited together into the novel The Gunslinger. And it's gone through multiple publications and edits to tie these novellas... uh, into the deeper mythos of the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. We read The Gunslinger. We uh, did two recap episodes on it. And we read the basically the original manuscript from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, though we did talk about some minor differences we came across. And there are three things, three categories I really want to talk about in this story, especially as this novella is set up, to be the first in what becomes king's magnum opus maybe and his central work i think you described it as glen that ties a lot of his other stuff together that, that that everything is really taking place in this one world and this is our first introduction to it or i should say everything that king has written or the vast majority of novels and works that king has written sort of tie into this central fantasy series and this is always kind of the nexus of his work in his imagination. Uh, In later books, King even writes himself into the Dark Tower series and says things in interviews and other things he's written that basically, this is a story that exists outside of him that he is constantly called upon to write. It's almost like the gunslinger is his muse. So as this is our introduction into that massive kind of King oeuvre, of stuff that's connected to the Dark Tower series. I want to talk about world building. I want to talk about the way that the story is crafted uh, and some of the character choices that King makes, and then some of the motifs that are just really evident on the page to unpack maybe where we think the story could go or things we might have done differently, if anything, and also just to talk about and enjoy this novella, which I think we both really liked.
1: Oh yeah, I loved doing this. This was a lot of fun for me. And I'm going to have a question of my own for you at the at the end uh, uh along those lines, but uh, but I'll save that for the end.
0: Great. Well, let's just start with the setting then. Uh we have this story set in a desert, but also in a town. And geographically, Glenn, where do you think this is? And and, and this question is also kind of tied into the notion that there are these pop culture references that seem to indicate that this story takes place in a future of our world. So what's your sense of what is going on with the geography and how that ties into these these pop culture references?
1: Right. So we were calling this surreal in the, the recap episodes, that there's this juxtaposition of all of the accoutrements or at least many of the accoutrements of a Western, right? This story has all of the furniture of a a, a Western and and especially an on-screen Western, right? Western films, Western uh, television series, right? But then also has clear pop culture references that are contemporary to us, or at least were contemporary to, to the world that King was living in, the era that King was living in when he started working on this story. So we've got Edith Joes, we've got the Beatles, which of course are things that don't belong in a Western. Those are things that don't belong in a story uh, about Utah or Arizona or New Mexico in the, the mid to late 19th. Century, right? So, what is going on there? I actually never considered that this might be a kind of post apocalyptic. Future, uh, which is strange because that's my jam. <laughs> that's something I actually really, really love. And 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 maybe in some ways you can actually see some things. Uh, uh, some of the tricks that King is doing here, or employing here, uh, are similar to things the uh, in, in the very famous, very excellent uh, Walter Miller novel, *A Canticle for Leibowitz*, which uh, uh, I'm eventually going to be covering on ATOS soon. But to me, this actually always read a lot more like a Star Trek episode where the, the crew beams down to a planet and discovers they're on the set of a Western movie and can't figure out how that works or why that's, why that's going on. I mean, that's like literally an actual Star Trek episode, <laughs> um, but that's what it felt like to me, right? That like something surreal was going on and, and maybe thinking back to the uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez story we did, this to me had more hallmarks of some kind of magical realism or just or, or magical surrealism, maybe uh, than it did of a, a post apocalyptic science fiction novel. But what was your feeling initially when we when you were going through this the first time? Well, the first time I read this, I was you know sixteen or
0: seventeen years old, and the only word I could think of to describe it was surreal. I think you're absolutely right to say that this shares elements with the kind of magical realism uh, genre. Which was, you know, we talked about in the very old man with enormous wings. is, Is it was primarily an innovation of South American literature. The reason why I thought this was surreal or felt like this was surreal when I read it the first time was the setting of it, the the Western, the kind of rottenness of the world or the uncanniness of the world, the the incongruities between this kind of post-technological world uh with a cultural memory of the Beatles or diners or old gospel you know Baptist gospel songs r- reminded me of like a Dali painting or something like that <laughs> and and that was my always my real sense of this though as we discover really almost at the beginning of the second book, and and it actually might even be the second story where we're introduced to the kind of gunslinger's uh, boy companion, Jake, uh, who becomes a major figure in this series. This is a, a portal fantasy novel. This these novels are portal fantasies, and the Dark Tower is kind of the nexus of the worlds in some way. Uh, so saving that is something that maybe saves all other realities. And I wonder if you got any sense from just this first story, if you would have ever guessed that this would have become a portal fantasy series, or if that helps explain maybe some of the surrealism or references
1: we get in this uh, novella. That's really hard to say because I went to reading this the first time, which I, I did in the summer of 1999 when I was in the Army. I, I, I went to reading this the first time with some knowledge of that already. So it's hard to say what I would have actually made of it if I had gone in completely without any knowledge of that. But there are some clues here, right? The, we have we have characters wondering what is the nature of this place that they are in, that they find themselves in, which suggests that there's another place that they all used to be or or maybe other places that they all used to be, and they're not really sure where they are or, or what this world is for. Uh, I mean, we've even got Brown say he thinks this might be the afterlife, and I think he seriously means that when he says it. So there are clues that we are dealing with a setting that is not just a post-apocalyptic future, but that is clearly some other type of place that is that is some sort of parallel world or something along those lines, right? And if you've read Narnia, right, this feels a little bit like that.
0: Yeah, the, the gunslinger really just enters the scene almost from nowhere. Uh, you know, that opening iconic line, uh, the the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed, doesn't locate us in really any kind of specific world. It's almost as though they appear on stage magically. And this is a story that's that's been going on um, that seems to start when the characters enter the stage. And anything is possible. We're going to talk a little bit more about what we mean by by this being a Western uh, when we talk about the motifs of this story. Uh, but but while this is a Western, it's almost like a Western noir. Like none of the characters are really the good guy on the page, and and I don't really feel myself rooting for anybody this time reading The Gunslinger, which was probably my fourth or fifth time, uh, though I did read it two times. <laughs> in preparation for this, (laughs) so it might might even be six times through it. Um, I found myself having a really unsympathetic sort of relationship with the gunslinger that was wholly different than the first time I read this story, uh, which it was just obvious from the opening line that he was the hero, he was the protagonist, uh, because he's chasing the man in black, which is just a trope of Westerns, of a lot of really uh, visual cinema, a a lot of cinema in the, you know, 1950s and 1960s, the Black Cloak, the Black Hat, whatever, those names all come from this sort of tradition
1: of storytelling. And this subverts some of the expectations of the genre, right? I mean, uh, stock idea of a a Western or really any chivalric tale is stranger comes into town, sees injustice in the town, and Saves town from that injustice uh, if it's a medieval Arthurian story that can be some kind of monster if it's a western it's bandits uh or capitalists or you know, <laughs> you know train barons or something like that right those are the those are the, the the things that people need saving from but in this case, actually, it turns out that the town is not a bunch of innocent people who are being Persecuted and need someone to protect them, they actually turn out to be the the baddies in some sense. I mean, it's not of their own accord, right? It's they've they've been magicked by the man in black, and so they've been turned into kind of a zombie horde. So in that sense, they certainly have been victimized. But it subverts the genre, right? That there's no one in this town that the gunslinger is going to be protecting. He's not here to protect the town because by the time he shows up, they've already lost. They've already been victimized.
0: Uh, yeah, we're going to get into that in a in a big way when we talk about craft and some of the character motivation that we encounter in this story or don't encounter. But I wonder if we're missing something about this town needing to be saved uh, in the way that King is writing about another really kind of large feature of this story uh, in terms of world building which is the religious beliefs and and cosmology there's reference to demons which appear to be real we've talked about already in this episode how brown the kind of monk or ascetic character that the gunslinger confesses to i suppose that's my Sense of what's happening, though you might have a different sense of why the gunslinger is telling the story to Brown. You know, thinks this is the afterlife. Uh, It could be hell. The desert certainly is hellish. There is the preacher in the town, Sylvia Pittston, who is the only representative we see of Christianity in this story, which is still a living religion, though I'm not sure if we're supposed to see that character, the preacher character, is kind of this corrupt, evil uh, person that it wasn't necessarily the the man in black that corrupted the town, but this version of Christianity that set the stage for the man in black to kind of do his job easily. And then we have this odd narrative intrusion at the end of the first chapter uh, by the narrator that talks about how this is kind of uh a cosmic horror story that the universe doesn 't care about the you know intelligent life on whatever planet or dimension we 're in and i I wanted to get your sense then, Glenn, on what you thought of the religious beliefs or the cosmology that we find in this story, and if we missed something, if there's some kind of injustice we're not privy to, or that might have been on King's mind as a late teenager or in his 20s and 30s that he's critiquing. That might have been more obvious to us in a different context.
1: Definitely, Sylvia Pittston is not a good character, or a good person. I mean, she's actually a phenomenal character. And that does seem to be, that does seem to have been the case even before the Man in Black got into town. So sorting out, kind of sifting through the evidence and trying to, to figure out where the Man in Black's influence begins or, or ends, really, maybe, in Sylvia Pittston's, in, in, in Sylvia Pittston's influence begins, that might be hard to parse out, but I do think that the two powers, the the two influences are related, right? Because we do see the The preacher as having been ensorcelled by the man in black in some way, right? My, I think there are there there is evidence that that leads to two different conclusions about her, right? There's some evidence that suggests that it was the man in black who put this demon in her, so that's something then that would have happened very recently. But I got the sense from Allie that Allie believes that the preacher that that Sylvia maybe always had a demon in her, right? That she came out of the desert and that, of course, what comes out of the desert is demons, uh, not people, right? People don't live there. Uh, And, you know, there's no clear, there's no concrete answer, I think, either way. And I think that's one of the interesting things that King is doing here. But thinking about the sort of cosmic scale of this and religion and especially Christianity uh, and and kind of revivalist Christianity here is what we see here. This sort of uh, fire and brimstone uh, stir up the populace Type of preaching that we're getting here, to me, reading this, I I thought for sure I was inferring constantly that what we've got here in the, in the Gunslinger and the Man in Black is something like an angels versus demons story. That the the Gunslinger is on a mission from God, right? That he really is a, a, a chivalric hero in the, the like really traditional sense of being a, a, a paladin, being someone who's kind of ordained in some way. Maybe not technically an angel, but something. Other than human, right? That he comes from this place that has a high speech uh, that is, is different from other, that is different from the language that the people in the town are speaking or even know as if it's almost uh, not just a different language, but a different Type of thing altogether, right its own special category that's sort of different from human languages and he's got these gold coins and and so on and so all of that led me to think that this is someone who's been sent on a mission directly from heaven, but the ending of this right this this sense that there's this clear assertion by the narrator that the universe does not care about us, and also the fact that the gunslinger doesn't seem to be a morally righteous person the way that I think we would want (laughs) a paladin to be uh, undermine that reading. But that was definitely the feeling that I had the whole way through.
0: I I really think that without the obvious nods to uh, genre traditions and tropes, uh, it would be very difficult for me to determine whether the gunslinger was the good guy or the bad guy in this story. The things he does to the people in Tall is far worse than anything that the man in black does. Though the man in black acts with malice, he does it almost as a cruel joke, this resurrection, this using this woman in order to lay a trap for the gunslinger, the Convincing the woman that the person following him is evil is is satanic in some way uh, that all of this seems would have seemed to me if I were a a person in toll that the man in black is is good and decent, and the gunslinger is evil the man in black even looking at the currency situation of this novella the economy the the way people pay for things. We pointed out in the recap that the man in black pays with silver, which is always something that's going to alert a reader, especially in a story that has so many references to Christianity in it, to Judas's betrayal of Christ. But silver is lesser than gold. So he's the man in black seems more humble then in paying in silver and not requesting change than paying in gold and kind of lording his wealth over these people. And the clothing he wears reminds people of clerics or or clergy, the clergy, in some way uh he seems to have a good relationship with the f- preacher in the town. he resurrects somebody, and it's all it's all malicious he's using them to ensnare the gunslinger, but I think without the fact that the gunslinger's the protagonist uh that he's chasing the man in black that we know. That you know, black hats are villains in these types of stories. It, it would be hard for me to say that, yes, the gunslinger is the, clearly the good guy and the man in black is clearly the villain. And I, I just think that's an interesting sensibility
1: that King has uh, adapted in order to tell this story. And that reading makes sense if we're looking at this from a a kind of populist perspective, right? If we're, we're thinking about who's doing the most good for people or who's at least doing the least harm for people. But I do think that we're supposed to look at this from the perspective of who's subverting the laws of nature. And who is not? And right, the man in black is subverting the laws of nature, or the the laws of God, right? Is subverting the way, the ordering of the the cosmos by resurrecting someone, by bringing someone back to life who is supposed to be dead, uh, and then not even really healing the person of the thing that killed them in the first place, right? So he is, you know, although the word sorcerer is what is used in the text, what we see him do is is necromancy, and uh, that's always bad, right? I'm sure someone has written a story out there in. <laughs> in which necromancy is a good thing. I mean, I guess Johannes Cabal sort of, though that's maybe a little less clear and, and that's a funny type of story anyway. But someone probably has written a dramatic story in which necromancy is a good thing, but that's not usually the way we do it, right? That book is going to be something that's subverting genre tropes, right? Here in this story, the genre tropes of fantastic fiction let us know that the man in black is definitely the bad guy because he's a necromancer.
0: Another thing I really find fascinating, you know, this, this story, the way that religion is represented in Sylvia's preaching. Uh, the way that Christianity is represented it, represented is uh, allowing people off the hook for their moral failings or whatever by blaming it on the interloper, the devil, whatever. And, and we see that people are just thoroughly corrupt in this town. They have. This kind of these murderous desires uh, you know sheb does and and has this jealousy about Ali that he doesn't express until these catalysts show up and uh, everybody's ready to kill the the town hostler is inbreeding with his family and they're he's cruel and rotten and craven as well and this really reminded me this idea of the person coming into town being a catalyst for everybody's dark desires really reminded me of the Lars von Trier film Dogville. (laughs) The the Dogville kind of ends almost the same way as uh, this story does as well. And it just, I don't know, kind of humorously made me think that uh, Dogville is somehow an uh, unofficial adaptation of the first (laughs) Stephen King novella, the, The Gunslinger.
1: The use of the word interloper, the the label interloper for Satan, is itself really interesting. I mean, it's a word that you might use to refer to the gunslinger. And in fact, that's how she's using it, right? But this is not a word, at least I don't think, that that, that shows up anywhere in Scripture or or anything that we might translate as interloper. Words that we do get are usually things like adversary or enemy right or sometimes we'll even get courtroom metaphors for uh, who Satan is right that he's kind of the uh, that he's the attorney on the other side of things from from God I'm thinking of job there there's some other places where we see that language as well but this idea of Satan as an interloper right Satan as someone who is trespassing someone who doesn't belong here and that it's the not belonging here that's the thing that makes him bad not the fact that he's, say, an adversary or an enemy, right? It's just that he shouldn't be here. If he were to go back to the place where he ought to be, then everything would be fine. That's a really weird understanding of Satan right? Theologically, that's a really weird understanding of Satan, but it is something that perhaps applies to the gunslinger as someone who has come from someplace else and doesn't belong here. And maybe that means tall only, but it also seems to mean this entire world, this entire plane of existence, you know, whatever that's going to to turn out to be as we continue reading. And that was something I found really fascinating. That is a really excellent point because if
0: the whole world is is kind of broken and corrupt and you spend your life, even as a theologian or a preacher as Sylvia Pittston does, seemingly defending the status quo of that world, uh, using the idea of somebody who comes from somewhere else to uh, restore that world in some way, almost turns the idea of Jesus himself into the devil in that case, you know, in in Christian theology. And it it is a a fascinating uh, term. I think King was maybe following closely, um, you know, revivalism that was taking place in the the 1970s, uh, the kind of growing forms of apocalyptic Christianity that were taking place, this obsession with the end times that were, you know, reaching far more people because of televangelism and things like that and this story is really critical of that which is is fairly bold i mean we don't get many stories that or novels that have anything to do explicitly with with christianity at all today not popular novels at least and especially not genre novels uh so this seems to me uh, almost refreshing in a sense to see somebody engage with What's happening in the popular form of, you know, Christianity is not a state religion in the United States, though it might as well be with every president sort of having to say they are one uh, in order to get elected, but that engaging and criticizing this mode of Christianity, uh, which is viewed as being essentially a really corrupting force on the people of this town and kind of letting them off the hook rather than causing them to act better in the world as it is. And, and I'd love to hear more from our listeners about maybe if they have an understanding of what's going on in you know evangelicalism or revivalism, Pentecostalism in the 1960s and 1970s, and, and what King is doing maybe to critique that mode of uh, theology, that mode of Christianity. I'd love to hear more about that. That is something that always interests me. Endlessly. But let's move on at this point and talk about the craft of the story. This will be the biggest section of our discussion. This is a nested story or a frame narrative. It has three levels. It opens with an omniscient third person narrating the events about the gunslinger and the man in black, uh, primarily focusing on the gunslinger, and really all of his thoughts are directed at what the man in black is doing and where he's going. Then we have the story that is supposedly told by the gunslinger to Brown, which is, you know, we call the horror at Tall. Then we go deeper in and we have Ali or Alice, uh, the proprietor of the local saloon, the Honky Tonk, giving the narrative of when the man in black came to Tall. Then we Crawl out of that back to the horror tall part two, and then the coda returns to the omniscient third person, where the gunslinger is telling uh, the story or wrapping up his thoughts with Brown. So uh, this was something I think we we probably put off a lot in the recap talking about that we brought it brought it up uh, of fair, n- we brought it up enough times. Well, what is your sense of what's going on really with the voice of this story? Do you think that this frame narrative should offer three voices? Are you disappointed? Do you think it doesn't work that we only have one really consistent tone and style in the write in the writing of this story? And you know what? What do you think King is doing? Is he using a, a separate kind of device uh, or style of writing here? Does it work? And if finally, if you got this story from uh, a student, what advice might
1: you? Give them, or particularly around the use of voice and style. Yeah, so a lot going on here in these these questions. The I mean, first thing I will say before I start saying critical things is, hey, I loved this story, and I I hope we'll keep reading this. Uh, and I've loved this story from the moment I I opened this book for the first time twenty years ago. It it's awesome. But if I did get this from a student, I would definitely criticize the kind of confusion about the fact that the horror at Toll is a story that's being narrated by a character in the frame narrative. We just don't get any indication of that once we get into. The horror at all section. There's no I voice. There's no first person voice for the gunslinger. There, that's that can be fine, I guess, as a stylistic choice. But I would have questions about it. I would want to know why the student made that decision. Really, what I would want to know is that the student did make that decision, right? That the student thought about it and said, "Well, yes, I want to do it this way, and here's why." I do think it works just fine for this story, though it was drawing. To me, at first, but I will say that what made it jarring, actually, is the fact that Allie's story is told in the first person, at least to to start, to some degree, and that's what struck me as strange: is that King was using both devices and not one and sticking with it. And I'm not sure that a more mature Stephen King would have written it this way either. So, yeah, this is this is the first time in the
0: series that King uses a frame narrative, but it's it's far from the last as as the characters have time to sit and talk and, and tell each other their stories or where they came from or whatever. Uh, Wizard in Glass, which is also another large frame narrative and, and also a major fantasy novel as well, I'd say, uh, is also consistently in the third person. So this is kind of the voice that King has decided to go with, is this this third person omniscient storyteller or limited uh, omniscience. And I think what he started with, with The Gunslinger, was the face of Clint Eastwood clinting into the sun, basically, with a cigar <laughs> hanging out of his mouth. This kind of stoic, taciturn, brusque voice. And I think it's an incredible voice. I mean, I do I love these books. I particularly love The Gunslinger. And I think It was the right choice to stick with that style and tone. Um, But it it is a good question, I think, to have if you're writing a frame narrative where a person in the frame is telling a story to someone else in the frame to think about why you're choosing to keep whatever voice you're doing or change voice and what it's adding to the story. Because I think... I wouldn't want to be inside the gunslinger's head necessarily as he is killing everybody in this town or as he is brutally assaulting Sylvia Pittston. I don't want to hear his justifications for it. I don't want to hear him go on and on and explicate how demons are real and how uh, he's justified in what he's doing. I think the kind of unsavoriness of his activities Uh, and what he's willing to do is best left unjustified, maybe, to the reader. And I think the temptation of moving into a first-person voice as storytelling would be to explain to the person that you're telling the story to what's going on and why you made those decisions. And so keeping it in this third-person kind of stoic, a detached voice
1: gives King an escape hatch from from that temptation. Right. This is this is very much the thing I was talking about when we covered *Ship of Fools* by Richard Paul Russo over on Atos uh, just very recently, which is a book that is written in the first person. Right. It's written by a, a narrator. It's a story being told to us by a narrator who is a character in the story, but yet Russo never really used the first-person voice for any particular reason. Uh, Even the actual sentences themselves are almost always constructed, or scenes anyway, are almost always constructed in this third-person perspective, in this third-person way. And so that was a strange choice, I thought, when we read that book. And the thing that struck me about Ship of Fools was the question of why are you writing this in a first-person voice if you are not going to give us an introspective, subjective experience here, right? If you're not giving us Proust, why is this a first-person story and not a (laughs) third-person story was the question I had for that book. Here, Stephen King has said, well, I definitely don't want to be inside the head of the gunslinger because I am thinking cinematically here about Westerns. And I think Clint Eastwood is exactly right. I think that's spot on. And so he avoids that problem. And so it, it absolutely is the right choice for the story that King wants to tell. It's an unusual choice, though, right? I think that most people, when they have a character in their story telling a story, have the character telling the story and don't just do something that feels actually quite like a movie flashback where we can't possibly get a subjective narrative where we just are getting a different story. From the same type of, of of narrative perspective, I also just was wondering. I think you know Stephen King has what somewhere between fifty and sixty books. Uh, I've read ten of them, so not a lot, right? It seems like a lot. That's a lot of books, but not a lot. I don't know if he's ever written anything in the first person. Do you? I don't think he has either.
0: I I, I didn't even really think about that until you mentioned it just now. He he seems to really focus on you know groups of people or group dynamics a lot you know, and especially kind of like small town life and, and small town experiences, I can't think of anything he's written in the first person either. I think he really is in this omniscient third person voice. I mean, even in It, which was the last uh, novel I read by Stephen King, he kind of does the same trick where he he has full omniscience for the third person narrator, but he consistently limits it Given different points of view, or given the need of the story, uh, and and that that might be just a major trick in his.
1: Uh, bag of, of tools. That that's a mixed metaphor all talk. <laughs> <laughs> well I think it works. I think it well I think it works really well here in this story. He certainly deploys it really well. Though I would be interested in, in checking out a first person story by King uh, if 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 anyone in the audience knows of one. I know that the I mean, I, there is the epistolary story, the story told in letters that's the the novella Jerusalem's lot, not the, the novel Salem's lot, but the novella Jerusalem's lot that's in uh, uh, night shift which is uh, uh where we we did not the rats in the walls uh, earlier this year. So I don't know, maybe we should check that out for our next uh, next King story. I just rechecked Wolves of the Kala, which is
0: King's continuation of uh, Father Callahan, a story of, of Jerusalem's Lot or you know the novel Salem's Lot, uh, thinking that that was in first person, but he does another kind of strange third-person trick in that as well, where he just limits omniscience and has the story being told in flashback, essentially. And and I think that it's remarkable that over the course of the 20 years or more, uh, 30 years maybe, that these stories were written, that he kept this really consistent uh, voice or style of expanding and contracting the third-person narrative. It's, it's really quite a feat to do over that long a period of time. And to even
1: have the story still live for a writer for that period of time. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's really impressive. And you know, maybe this is something that that stood out to us because we do also spend a ton of time on Gene Wolfe who writes disproportionately in the first person uh to most to most other writers. Right, exactly.
0: Well, there's more to talk about with the craft of this story other than just the voice and style and tone. In the recap episode, we pointed out that there was an additional coda that emphasizes the to be continued aspect of this novella uh, that was tacked onto the end of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction uh, publication. You know, and that's because a magazine reader wouldn't know that this story would continue otherwise. So I want to ask you. First, if anything in this novella indicates that it would be a continued story to you if you didn't know that it was going to continue, is, is that kind of extra parenthetical necessary if you found this in a magazine? Or did you feel like you were left wanting to know more about elements of the novella or the characters or what's going on? You know, In other words, how do you feel that this novella sets up a series?
1: So, I do definitely think it clearly sets up a series, and we don't need this uh this comment at the end this kind of uh annotation from someone looking at a at a manuscript or someone publishing a manuscript i I guess that we do get in the magazine because obviously, if this is not going to continue, there is zero need for the frame device right we could have just told the story of the horror at all, without any need for Brown and the frame narrative at all. That exists to be the glue between this story and the next story, which is a classic storytelling device, right? To have a character with an interesting past who's going to tell you who's going to tell you gentle listener all the adventures or many of the adventures that he's had in his past well you buy him drinks at the bar or something like that or we can follow that character as he's on some other adventure and that adventure is punctuated by stories within stories right classic trope that king is appropriating here it's one of my favorites so it's something something that really resonates with me something i really love but that's what you need that for so in that sense that's kind of odd but I do think that that uh, appendix there or appendage maybe at the end does a number of things one, it makes all of this explicit and that is there for the editor and it's there for readers to write to the editor to say when when is the next story in this series coming right to make it clear that there is going to be A series, not just that this is potentially a single narrative, but that there's a lot more to this, that there's a broader, uh, bigger, more expansive world out there and that the story is even an artifact of its own world. All of that certainly serves someone who, uh, in the pulp tradition, is hoping to make a living selling these stories, uh, <laughs> you know, every single month to one magazine or another. Stephen King did not need to do that. So in that sense, I think it's kind of an homage to people like Robert E. Howard, for example, uh, Lovecraft, uh, well, less Lovecraft because he was cranky and didn't play these games. But so we'll just say Robert E. Howard uh, and maybe Clark Ashton Smith, who did exactly these sorts of of things in order to make a, a career out of this. And I, I thought that was a really nice nod.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean we also have the fact that we want the gunslinger to catch the man in black. So like that that's a part of it. He's gonna continue chasing him. The introduction of this character, Court, at the end in the last two paragraphs is bizarre and kind of leaves you with a hook for who is Court. The gunslinger had a mentor. Uh, so he has a real past, not just like an immediate past. He has a history, I guess, is probably a better way of putting it. He was taught by somebody. Uh, he didn't just pick up these skills on the road, kind of living a rough trade of some kind. And there is a lot then, uh, you know, as you pointed out, that. Does suggest that this is going to continue, that he's going to cross the desert, that he wants to go to the mountains. What's going to happen in the mountains? Is something bad going to happen to him in the desert? Um, all these questions we want answers to, maybe. But the most important part of setting up a series with the, the kind of singular hero, and whether he's an iconic or, or dramatic hero, uh, is maybe not the best question. To ask right now, if we do more of these stories, we'll we'll be tackling that question and what it means and how he develops his character. But the real question I have then is, do I want to spend more time with the hero, with Roland, the gunslinger, after this story? And I want to know what your thoughts are on this being the introduction to the protagonist of a series, of the gunslinger as protagonist.
1: I think you're spot on to say that this hinges on the protagonist, right? I mean, this is certainly how Robert E. Howard's stories work, right? He's selling you on Conan. He's selling you on Cole. He's selling you on Solomon Kane, But I don't really feel like the gunslinger character is the selling point in this story. To me, what is front and center is the world, is this surreal setting. That is what I want more of, right? If I had read this in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 1978... And saw clear indication that there's more to this story. I would have been super excited about it, but not because I was interested in the gunslinger character, but because I wanted to know more about this setting. I wanted to know more about this world. And I'll say too that that the the appendage at the end there, this idea that there's a manuscript and that someone is sharing this manuscript with us with some kind of commentary on it, that actually even heightens my interest in the the world. Uh, And so it's not the character for me. It's the the world. Though usually, right, you're supposed to be hooking people on a character, right? That's how Sherlock Holmes works and so on.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talked about how this novella, we talked about how this novella smuggles in the man versus nature conflict and, and kind of buries that as the core movement of the tension of the plot. Is like, how is this guy even going to live long enough? Is he going to be able to eat? Is he going to be able to survive the desert sun? Is he going to have enough water? Is he going to die of dehydration? Is he going to be warm enough at night? What if the wind comes and he can't be in the desert? He'll get blown away like the bodies at toll. How this conflict of the man in black is almost a red herring um, that gives us a, a sort of conflict to deal with that the gunslinger desires to catch the man in black. But the real tension and the real sense of thrill and uh, plot movement in this novella is about man versus nature. And so nature in that sense is really the antagonist of the story. And the gunslinger still (laughs) still remains to be the protagonist. But you're (laughs) right. The setting is the real villain that is kind of more fun to learn about. We want to learn more about the types of things that are going to kill the gunslinger. And I wonder if that is a part of the subversion of of tropes that King is working with in his characterization of the gunslinger, um, that you kind of want to see him overcome whatever natural world odds he's put up against, only to see him suffer more because he's, he's really an unpleasant character. He's an unpleasant protagonist. And, and why I say he's an unpleasant protagonist, because it seems to me like all of the unpleasantness at all could have been avoided if the gunslinger just said what he was going to do and continue to pursue the man in black uh, and not stay. And especially after knowing that the man in black has left a, this trap, like, why does the gunslinger need to spring it? and. I, I just don't have a strong sense of, of what's going on with this gunslinger, you know. I don't like the gunslinger after all he's done in Tull. He prostitutes himself for information, he really brutally and disturbingly assaults the town's clergy, and then he kills everyone because the man in black left a trap. And that leaves us to infer that the man in black is so evil that the gunslinger needs to destroy that everything that the man in black taints. Brown was somehow able to escape the the evil of the man in black but at the end of the day you know this is a really unpleasant protagonist that you're kind of rooting for him to remain in this conflict and to continue to suffer and i i wanted to get your read on that really what what the
1: gunslinger's m- motives are what its real motivation is yeah a lot going on here i do think it's interesting to think about other Iconic characters, which is to say characters who get lots of stories told about them and they're meant to more or less stay the same so that the protagonist of each story is the same, right? The character doesn't change uh, from one story to another. There's no growth, right? We're not telling a story about someone's emotional growth or emotional arc. We just want this character to be a kind of icon. Sherlock Holmes is a great example of that. James Bond is also a great example of that. Uh, Star Trek is kind of set up this way as well, or at least old school Star Trek is set up this way as well. But I wonder if we think about some of the most iconic of iconic heroes, how many of them we actually really do like as people? How many of them we would actually want to have in our lives as friends? In some way, uh, like James Bond and Sherlock Holmes, I think are both characters who maybe not aren't actually good people who do bad things, but we're interested in their stories. Uh, we might say this too, even uh, about most hard boiled. The- detectives. Also, Uh, Marlowe, for example, Sam Spade. Sam Spade, for sure, in The Maltese Falcon. Uh, If you go to that book knowing nothing about The Maltese Falcon or about Sam Spade, you're about 90% of the way through that book before you're really sure that Sam Spade is the good guy. And in fact, I think you could finish that book and still not be sure that Sam Spade actually was a good guy the whole time. And I think that King is has his finger on the pulse of that actually here in the way that he's depicting the the gunslinger. I think the the gunslinger actually shares a lot of DNA with uh, someone like Sam Spade or or James Bond who are themselves also of course just chivalric heroes, right? This is all going back to to high medieval literature. That's a really great point. And I think it it does. I think the
0: tension of us being uncomfortable with what the protagonist of these types of stories is up to what they're doing, how many people they kill. I mean, what's the kill count of, of James Bond movies? Uh you know, and and as long as we're reassured that all the bad guys are really bad, the good guys kind of have carte blanche. And and this is also s- sort of the theme in in a sense of the preacher's sermon, maybe on some levels in this that Sylvia Piston gives At the church service in this story. And we either have to trust that the gunslinger is in such a brutal world that these actions are justified as a protagonist, that the things really are that bad that allow for the justification of the gunslinger to do what he's doing, or we're stuck with a, a protagonist that's sort of unpalatable. And I think by adding that level of suffering, to the gunslinger, it's almost a sort of uh, cathartic element of reading the story that we want to see him do the necessary thing, but we want to see him suffer for it as well. And that's kind of a hallmark of you know the chivalric hero from hard-boiled stories
1: on. Yes, absolutely. And I I suppose thinking back to your other question about how how does the protagonist hook me in the story, that is something I would be interested in seeing in in the future, is how his adventures take a toll on him. One of the other things about his behavior, about the gunslinger's uh, murderiness and prostituting himself and so on, that I think is at play here is wrapped up in this question that Brown asks or statement that Brown gives, I guess, about this potentially being the afterlife. Because I think that if we take that seriously as a possibility, what's totally off the table as an option, though, is that this might be heaven, right? This world is definitely not heaven. It might be some kind of limbo, it might be some kind of purgatory, and it might be hell, but it is definitely not heaven. And I think that the gunslinger's behavior here then works. In that, that he is in, in some ways kind of uh, when in Rome, right? Doing as as Romans do, uh, but maybe even thinking more theologically or cosmologically, this is maybe a, a parallel world, a dimension that isn't real. Uh, that these people are that these people are here to be punished for something that they did in the real world, and so whatever he does to them just is inconsequential. Because this isn't the world where those things happen, or even if we're maybe thinking platonically, I guess, right, where there's the the the, the world of the forms, and then there's the, the the pale imitation of the forms. That this is just not real, and so. He can do whatever he wants, right? That these are not really individuals. Maybe these are not even really souls. Uh, I definitely had the sense that something like that was going on just from the, the feel of this story. I don't know if that will bear out in any way or, you know, if that's even the sort of thing that King has on his mind here.
0: Yeah, it certainly is, if I recall correctly. All of this talk is making me want to just sit down and read all seven novels (laughs) again really badly and kind of remember the answers to these questions. But I don't think that this is the prime world. Uh, I think the world that Stephen King, the author, lives in is, and then there are all his stories, which are all these other types of worlds. I know World of the Stand is one that shows up in the fiction, the kind of creatures from It show up later on in the Dark Tower series. So uh, King has just an awful lot on his mind. I did have one other question here that, that kind of relates to craft in, in terms of character motivation, which is really, why do you think the gunslinger
1: stays in the town instead of leaving? Right. That's the big question. I mean, we, we had this question while we were reading the story, because this is, I think, one of the things that King does give up by telling the the story in third person and not giving us the subjective experience of the, the character or introspective experience of the character. But you can do that in third person too, but King just chooses not to do that. And, and for a lot of good reasons, a lot of uh, good reasons that really work here, but this is something that we're definitely missing. But I really have the sense, and I think maybe that's all I can go on, is that, wow, he's been after the Man in Black for a long time. I think he's been after the Man in Black in this world, whatever it is, for a long time, and I also have the sense he's been after the man in black in other worlds for a long time, and he's maybe tired of it. Even though it's his duty, it's his mission, it's his identity, it's all he has. I have the sense that he is tired of it, and he found a place where he could get uh, really bad hamburgers, mediocre beer, uh, and some some romance. I guess some 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 affection from somebody, and just maybe some some rest and he took that, right? That this is, in some ways, kind of the middle part of his story. This is the the part of the hero's journey where the hero is maybe not so sure he wants to keep being a hero anymore, that he's tempted away from the mission by the comforts of civilization, which is almost always, uh, you know, the comforts of a woman, right? I think that's a really keen insight about this being
0: kind of the middle part of the hero's journey. And certainly, the man in black knowing he can leave a trap like this. The trap is, uh, maybe don't pursue me anymore, but if you don't chase me, I'll find a way to kill you using other people. Uh, (laughs) And the gunslinger knows this, but I think he, he wants to draw it out. Also, catching the man in black is the completion of his whole identity. He won't need to continue on anymore. And him stopping at this point in his life and Enjoying the comforts of civilization, however dark it is or twisted it is, and that leading to him killing everybody is sort of like his way of reminding himself that he has to go on. And it's the man in black's way of reminding him, too, that their kind of identities are caught up in each other in some way, which is a classic conflict of the protagonist and the antagonist. To think of Joker and Batman, how you start out. With, in this kind of iconic storytelling, with maybe not an iconic villain, but slowly as you write more and more of these stories, the psychologies become intertwined of these two, uh, of these two people in conflict, and that just becomes the norm of this type of storytelling. The next thing I want to talk about to bring us home here is the. Mot- are the motifs of the story. And to me, there are really three, and and they're maybe all intertwined. We have the tropes of the Western, which are really undermined. We've talked about those a little bit. We have the repetition of this idea of the gunslinger as a romantic hero, or thinking of himself as romantic, or thinking about romanticism. And then this repeated phrase that the world has moved on. And the way we're using romantic here is as the chivalric hero, which we've talked about a lot, the kind of paladin, the person who comes to town and sets things to right. Though I wondered if you thought King was using a different notion of romantic when the gunslinger thinks ideas are romantic or he's romantic in some way.
1: If we're thinking about romantic in the sense of uh, the nineteenth-century literary movement, I mean, there are some interesting things that King is doing with that here. I mean, one thing we should say, of course, right, is that uh, the whole business with Roland to the Dark Tower came is from a nineteenth-century poem, right? So King has the nineteenth century on his mind. I mean, I think I made a joke last time about it's pretty clear what types of English classes he was taking as part of his uh, his English degree in college. Uh, read this, you know, as he was coming up with the ideas for this, but. If thinking about romantic as a literary movement. I mean, the the natural uh, landscape here, and especially the, the man versus nature, I think is a big part of that. But then also uh, the idea of uh, the individual as standing outside of a, a community and maybe even being Kind of antagonistic with a community, right? Romanticism is a kind of hyper individualism as a big part of its ethos, along with naturalism. Uh, We might also say that Romanticism is also really interested in strange settings. Uh, For most Romantic poets, most Romantic writers, that ends up being a kind of Orientalism, right? It's parts of the earth that are deemed as exotic, and you have your characters go there, or have been there, or you bring people from there to. Exoticize your your setting to to add an element of I guess the strange or the weird to your story. Uh, we can I don't know maybe think of uh, of Kublai Khan for that or something like that. Uh, but and, but maybe we have some of that here in the kind of surrealist setting, a kind of updated sense of that. But uh, I feel like you've probably got better answers to this question than I do, Brandon. I really don't. I mean,
0: I thought that was a, I thought that was a really fantastic answer. I think the surrealism, e- even in thinking of poems like Kublai Khan, the dreamscape, the importance of dreams. Uh, the gunslinger doesn't really dream here or think about anything else. So, or have surreal thoughts. It's more like he is in this place that is a dream of somebody else's. Uh, and that that is actually a kind of of a major theme of these novels that the gunslinger realizes he is somebody else's uh, creation, like Stephen King's. Um, so that that I think is a major theme of the whole arc of the Dark Tower. But I think you're right to point out this kind of exoticism or uh, the making strange of a landscape that we're familiar with the extreme senses of individualism that the Gunslinger demonstrates, that Roland demonstrates, as well as kind of man versus nature and man versus man, really man versus community, that standing outside of community in order to have this kind of third person, party objective view of the world. So you can either judge it or stand on your own and refuse the judgment of the world. That is absolutely in play here in this novella. So I I think those are all the aspects at play here, though I'm sure there are more apart from just Roland being a a chivalric hero, uh, which he is. And, And I wondered if we could just talk briefly about the way that Roland, as a chivalric hero, undermines specifically the tropes of the kind of man comes to town stories of the western. One of the best types of stories, you know, that exists is the the kind of man comes to town story. We covered so many of these stories (laughs) (laughs) in Elder Sign, in particular, because that. You know the way uh, William Hope Hodgson writes a lot of his stories. It's kind of a a really classic story. It gives you this sense of the outsider coming in and seeing what's not right and what's not normal. It's also a cipher for the the, the kind of the stranger coming to town. It's also a cipher for the reader. So you're introduced to this world that operates on its own terms uh, with new eyes, with the with the view of an outsider, and. What's interesting to me is that the gunslinger is not really surprised or uh, shaken or concerned about anything that's going on in Tall. This is kind of part of his weariness as a character, which I think the Western hero in particular is used to dealing with corruption, corrupt the corrupt mayor, the train baron, the coal mine owner, the, the swindler, whatever it is, the bandits in the hills. And so it's just that carrying of weariness, I think, is part of the character that works really well. But the actions the gunslinger takes, which we've talked about, in the context of this story are maybe okay or justifiable. But objectively, as a reader, being introduced to this character are not the types of things you would expect the Western romantic hero to to be to engage with at all. To prostitute oneself is not what the Western hero does, you know, when he comes into a town in order to get information, though Ali says, you know my price, and the gunslinger doesn't even blink. He says, yeah, I do. Like, this is something he's encountered before. (laughs) Uh, So it's just this level of weariness that's worn down his own moral compass that I think is the biggest mode of undermining the uh, chivalric hero of the Western in, in this story.
1: I agree with that completely. And I think my jaw dropped when he doesn't turn down the sex with Allie because that's what that scene is for. Anytime we encounter something like this in a Western, that scene is 100% for the character to turn that down so that we can know that this is a good, moral, righteous character who doesn't want to take advantage of people and who only wants sex in uh the confines of a, a romantic relationship and maybe doesn't want it at all, right? That's actually one of the things that 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 something a scene, a scene like this actually could also function to let us know that this person is broken, that our protagonist is having trouble, is struggling relating to other people, right? And needs some kind of redemption. And in fact, he's about to get it in this town when he saves this town from the baddies, whoever they might be. And also, uh, we'll probably, if not the next scene, two to three scenes later, after we've met the sort of temptress prostitute character, we're going to meet the widow with the kids who he's going to end up with at the end, right? That's the scene this is supposed to be. And King just subverts that. And I was not expecting it. And and it re- really hit me hard. And it worked so well. I mean, that's the effect it's meant to have. And it definitely had that on me.
0: Yeah. I And, and the biggest undermining of these tropes of the Western is that... Uh... The gunslinger doesn't solve any problems at all. He just kills everybody. <laughs> so there can be no problems there anymore. It's kind of an ultimate solution to, <laughs> to to the fact that people can cause problems with the sort of systems they create and choose to live in uh, for each other. He says, well, if there's no people, they can't make problems. Uh, and it's just it's just crazy because he could have avoided all of this. And to me, that's a major shift in the tropes of the western which is to to redeem to bring justice to help out the little guy uh and this town of everybody who's the little guy the gunslinger doesn't stand apart from it he is
1: just going to kill everyone yeah he's like a marvel villain right? yeah i mean essentially <laughs> right well, I think we've hit all the points on on your questions Brandon but I I just had a couple of questions of my own and the the first one is is just thinking back to some conversations that you and I have been having a little bit on the air lately but that we often have off mic I was interested in what you were listening to while you were reading this
0: Boy that that's a great question so I've been listening to a lot of Eric uh, Satie lately and that's been on my mind whether that's been on like Expressly, while I've been reading, or just the the haunting tunes of that are in my head, but the haunting tunes and compositions he's he's written for piano have just been in my head. But the kind of honky tonk <laughs> like rendition of Hey Jude is I've just been imagining what that would sound like, and have sort of been listening to my own odd dream state version of that while I was reading. But I've also been listening to uh, Pink Floyd. Lately, and they, I've just been kind of listening to their albums and kind of letting them play through on Spotify, and I can't remember the name of the song, and I and I feel like a philistine here, but they have a song that is totally inspired by kind of the neo morricone Western. soundtracks, you know, and, and uh, movie scores. And that is something that also kind of jumped out to me as I was reading the story. What were, you, what were you listening to, Glenn?
1: <laughs> well, I thought you were actually going to say Ennio Morricone, because you're the person who got me into Ennio Morricone. You and I are both pretty into film music, uh, we should say. And so I thought, hey, there's a movie adaptation of this that I did not see. And I am uh, I have been told that that was the right choice. But I thought, let me uh, listen to that score, uh, which I did. I listened to it probably four or five times. Uh, during my, my reading of the story or, or preparing for the, the episode, uh, the score is by Junkie XL. Have you heard it at all? I I actually saw the
0: adaptation, uh, and I remember nothing of it. Even though I probably saw it last year, and I don't, re- I especially don't remember the score. So it didn't even occur right. to me that, you know the person I've really been listening to the most in terms of filmic composers is uh, Johan Johansson, uh, who who's just the best. So I mean uh, though he's passed recently, but I just did not, it didn't even occur to me because I didn't remember this movie existed actually until you (laughs) brought it up just now. And that I had seen it
1: to even go look for the score while I was reading this story. Uh, well, I felt the score was fine. Perfectly adequate, I think, is the the way that I would describe it. Junkie XL is a composer who I like. He uh, did the uh, Man of Steel score and I think worked with Hans Zimmer. I mean, maybe that was a score he worked with Hans Zimmer on, but he's worked with Hans Zimmer as well. Uh, but it was not really the tone that I wanted for this. Uh, it was more action-adventure story, it really felt more like superhero story than it felt like weird Western. And so that was a bit disappointing to me. And in fact, what I wound up doing was uh, just listening to Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes that I think had a lot more of the the tone and sounds that I, I wanted for this. But the, the reason I brought this up, the reason I wanted to ask you this question is precisely because of that. Because I was making conscious choices about the music I was listening to based on my understanding of what this story is, Right. And my understanding was that this is a weird Western, but clearly the film or at least the score to the film thinks that this is like a superhero story. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the film is kind of a mess.
0: It's utterly forgettable. As I said, that's a a poor way to review anything. I enjoyed it while I watched it. And I didn't think it was as big of a I don't know, betrayal or, or kind of punch in the gut to the fans, as many people reviewed it as. It just had too much it was trying to do in terms of the whole scope of the Dark Tower series into one movie. And so it just didn't quite work. I, you know, that's all I can say about it. It didn't quite work. I enjoyed it. I'm never going to watch it again. Uh, but. Maybe I will. Who knows? Maybe I will want to see Idris Elba uh, shoot guns for a little while at, at Matthew McConaughey. That's a weird niche that uh, might happen. That, that's a weird <laughs> sort of niche idea that uh, I might come across acro- per- ahead in my brain and think, I do want to see that again. But most likely, I mean, it's it's just a forgettable movie.
1: Right. Well, that that actually seems like exactly the sort of thing that I would want to watch, though. I don't know. Maybe I'll just go watch The Wire again. I mean, I know Matthew McGonaghy is not in that, but uh, I'm really there for the (laughs) Idris Elba anyway. Well, the other question I had for you, Brandon, is is pretty simple, which is, uh, should we do the next one? Should we do the next story? I would
0: love to. I would love to continue, at least with these four or five novellas that are in the Gunslinger collection. I had such a good time revisiting this story, and reading it kind of more uh, with a more critical lens than i would have probably done any time i would go pick up this book and finding that it kind of really stands up to scrutiny and it's a, it's a wonderful novel i mean to me this is like you know king's fellowship of the ring or really the opening in the shire it's a lot darker than that but my favorite you know of the lord of the rings is also the first book not the whole of The Fellowship of the Ring, but really just the first book in the series, the the uh, pastoral part of that. And this, to me, though it's not a pastoral, The Gunslinger, the novella, is probably my favorite part of the whole series. And I happily continue on and and ap- apply the critical eye to the rest of the novellas.
1: Yeah, awesome, because I would love to do that too. So I think we'll we'll throw the next one on uh, an upcoming ballot. And of course, I'm really grateful that one of our Patreon supporters told us we should do this. And th- that's actually going to bring us up to four uh, things that are maybe kind of books uh, that we are covering, trying to cover in order, though, of course, uh, we are leaving it up to our Patreon supporters if we do this or not. But we are working our way through The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers uh, in order, right? That's something we've been kind of a stickler about. And we're also doing Vance's uh, Dying Earth, at least the, the first book, which similar to this one is a collection of, of short stories, uh, though in that case, I think even less related with, to each other than than these are. These do actually function as a, as a novel as well. And we're about to get started. We'll have more to say about this next year, but we're also about to get started uh, working on an Alan Moore book, an Alan Moore novel that is also actually a series of self-contained vignettes. So we'll have four of these that we're going through uh, in addition to just the sort of uh, random splatter of weird fiction stories that we normally do, <laughs> which I think will be a lot of fun because, you know, this is, uh, these are stories. These are our books that we'll be reading chunks of from time to time over the course of, of several years. And I think that'll be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm really excited about the kind of the number of projects we have going on at Elder Sign. So on that note, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. If you enjoyed our coverage of this, think about voting for it on the next ballot that we put
1: out uh, the next novella. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand, and as always, you can find us and all of our shows at claytemplemedia.com. Hop on over to
0: the Clay Temple forums or our new subreddit and let us know what you thought of our coverage of the gunslinger. Definitely let us know if you know uh, a lot more about, you know, Christianity developments in the U.S. in the late 1970s, uh, what you see going on with King being critical of those uh, theological moves. I'd love to read more about that.
1: Yes. And if you're a real King devotee, if you are a constant reader, I would love to know all of the instances of Stephen King writing in first person, because I'm going to make that a personal project for some strange reason. Uh, Well, actually, what I'll do is to start throwing some of those stories on balance as well. And if you would like to hear us talk about Lovecraft's novel At the Mountains of Madness, please do join us at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. We're really close to hitting that goal. And I'm, I'm at least pretty eager to get started. I think Brandon is too. As a Patreon supporter, at any level, you get access to our monthly bonus episodes. And, and these cover the whole range of things that we do on the, the network. But germane to this show, we did recently release an episode on the story Ex Tenebris by Russell Kirk, which was a runner up on one of our story selection votes. So next time, we're going to be back with our last story of the year. It's going to be Foundation by China Mieville. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.